It's the second cup of Joe and John with Joe Elvis and John Dwyer. Joe, I want to begin this episode with a thought-provoking question, one that will delve into your soul, um, make you reflect on where you've been, where you're going, and I fully expect a really funny answer. A guess? (laughs) A guess? Oh, God, where are you going? Um, I heard this on a uh, radio program, you know, FM, um, very antiquated, uh, something called uh, Fresh Air. And Terry Gross asked this question of this famous actor. And I thought, this is really deep. I thought this was, this is good stuff. So I'm going to steal it. Is this on Delilah at night or something that you're listening to? <laughs> it's, a, it's on the AMFM Philco. Is, is yeah, <laughs> and you know we flip through the dot. We don't even flip through dials anymore. Oh, we yeah. we punch anyway. Here was the question: um, Name a life defining moment from your youth. Oh, gee, and thanks. make it interesting thanks for gosh sakes. Okay, we got to keep our. Well, we don't have a sponsor yet, but we have to. If we did, we have to keep them. Okay. Mm. Uh, wow. You should have sent this like a week ago. I sent it to you an hour ago. You still had time. We do no show prep. You know that. Think about it. You know, I have been kind of blessed and we'll talk with our guest about this. Hey, have kind of have fence posts in life. Uh, mine will probably be of a spiritual nature. Uh, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, and I think I was very fortunate to have a great mom and dad. One of my fence posts in my life is my mother, uh, who would always have something to eat, or uh, never complained. I've never heard my mother complain. She's 85. You you and I did not come from the same womb, I'm telling you. My mom now has... uh, R.I.P., Mom. Sorry. (laughs) She has scoliosis now. I still never hear her complain. Uh, My mom worked a full-time job as an emergency room nurse. Uh, If you were sick, she was there the next hour with a pot of soup and a listener. And I really, my mom was always my safe spot. I think that kind of defined a a way for me and sort of a pastoral way uh, to look at others. And so that moment went from when I was playing baseball and smelling the grass, fresh cut grass, and I pitched and they'd give you that brand new baseball. And the first thing I do would sniff it. And it's those moments in life, I think, that keep you with a positive outlook. And uh, it wasn't until now. Let's fast forward. I always had a belief. Are you, have you moved out of the home yet? I'm no. just curious. <laughs> I'm living down in the basement. Uh, it wasn't until I got a little older that I've always had a kind of walking conversation with God of help me in this moment or what am I doing or I, I can't take this anymore. And it wasn't until I got married. Uh, I lived in West Nashville and my wife's Episcopal Episcopalian and St. George's Episcopal Church is five minutes away. And Sundays were usually for drinking beer, eating wings and watching football. And she said, let's go to church. And we went to St. George's church. So Kim was the one that, that, that yeah, pushed you there? I your your so. wife? I grew up Methodist. Years? I grew up Methodist C&E, as we okay. called it, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and so uh, it was then that God came into my life and truly changed things in my life where um, I, have, I've, I have experienced God's touch firsthand first absolute hand. And then to share that with others. So my fence post, my life-changing event really didn't come to a later in life. It wasn't a sickness. It wasn't a car wreck or something horrible. It was really a, a kind of a spiritual awakening. Whew. 
That's a great answer. And by I the way, the Episcopal was. angle will fit into our our guest. By the way, uh, I didn't went. I did not wear a collared shirt. I am not dressed up. I did not prepare for this. We we are way in over our head with our guest today. He is. This is Joe. You have. Del- I didn't. You delivered. This is good stuff. Um, mine quickly would be. Uh, I was probably eight or ten years old. My mother was doing the dishes, looking outside the window at the front yard, and I was playing with my friends upside, a, uh, climbing a tree with my friends. And uh, and my mother said to my my dad, "Jerry, get your son down. He's going to fall and hurt himself." And she said it just like that, by the course, way. Yeah, yeah because she, she, she was on her third pack of the day. She had her SIG, her SIG going there. Inside. You know, she smoked for 65 years and did not die of lung cancer. It's just stunning. What did she smoke? Uh, larks. Larks. Oh, yeah. Don't, oh but that was the era of smoking. Oh, my God. That was heavy, dude. There's no, there were no camel lights. I my mean, this grandfather. Was, I mean, this was, this was heavy. So anyway, she said, and my father said to Lark. my mother, um, I will not tell my son to get down in front of his friends. If he falls, he's a boy, he breaks his arm, and we'll take him to the emergency. I never <laughs> fell. But I thought that was sweet that he didn't go out there, and, and uh, you know, the lesson was less is more, and just let boys be boys, and I, and, and I did it. So anyway, I just thought, I thought that was good. So um, anyway, you want to get to our guest? Well, uh, we're going to tie what were probably childhood goals into uh, 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 as a life that he lives every day now from his creative side, Catch Secor. Uh, you'll know him instantly from the front man from Old Crow Medicine Show. And we're going to talk about a spiritual side of Catch here a little bit later on that is truly, I think, more amazing than even his band, uh, his band's success. And here in the JTG studio, uh, make welcome Catch Secor. Uh, the new album is out. The tour is underway all summer long. COVID is done. He's back to doing what he likes. And uh, they've taken alternative country to bluegrass to, I'm going to let him describe it the best. It's it's They've made a niche that no one has and no one does it better. And uh, I in all uh, divulgence here, I've known Catch. Uh, for wow, it's been about eight years now, and uh, I've seen two sides of him. Just an absolutely amazing man. And we're <laughs> Where's talk- the other one going? Hey, wow! <laughs> and we're going to uh, we're going to experience what is a great success story. So, catch uh, in the middle of this monster tour, you found time here, and we are be- unbelievably great. This in, is fantastic. In the middle of this monster introduction, <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> You better not suck, okay? <laughs> Y'all, <laughs> no. you guys are making me want to get a little uh, man cave where I can do a podcast in my backyard. Oh, yeah, I tell you, a lot of people what? have left this closet going... God. Yeah, I need me one of these. Said nobody. Where, no. Where'd y'all get all this gear at? Is this something? You know, yeah, we got, we know people. We know we 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 uh we we got hooked up. We know how to look at Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's about about what happened. But thanks for coming to. Uh, to the JTG Global International Headquarters, Kate, catch this is this is a real thrill. Sure. Well, I didn't have to come far because I live right up the street from you. Awesome. Right here yeah. in East Nashville, three seven two zero six. That's right. You are a huge East Nashville proponent. Um, the new house you're in, not far from your old house, uh, but the, you dig this side of town, and you've been here since it was kind of starting to be what it is now. Of one of the hottest spots in the nation. Well, the reason why is because of my orientation to the city when I first came here. The Grand Ole Opry is why I came to Nashville. And uh, uh, and so that put me in this um, quadrant of the city. 
And then also, um, the prices of the motel rooms on Trinity Lane were a plus. Yeah. <laughs> By the hour, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so that always put me on the, either the east side or the north side. And then I lived in White's Creek when I first moved to Nashville. Well, I lived on Dickerson Road with, with the band when we came here in the, you know, about 2000, that summer of the year 2000. And I've been coming here before that to play on the street corner with other bands. And I just, I wanted to stake my claim in Nashville, Tennessee. So I do live in East Nashville and I love it here. But, you know, I really picked Nashville. Uh, it, it was a town that called to me like no others. And a lot of towns were ringing me up. And the places Catch just listed, not necessarily the nicest part of towns up through Dickerson Road. A little gentrification the going on there. But Creek uh, era. Yeah. And we're talking 10, 15, what is it? Almost yeah, you were ahead ago? of the curve, actually. Well, this was 20. You, you were yeah, progressive. 20 years ago. So Old Crow Medic catches a Northeast guy, but the band really started forming out of North Carolina. Uh, talk about how you and Critter took that vibe and brought it here to Nashville, because it's a great story. Well, I was mostly raised in Virginia, and if you're calling that the Northeast, well, you must be from <laughs> down south. So. He, Joe hasn't really looked at a globe lately. Not, not, not that he makes a living as a, as a private pilot. I'd like uh, to think he has a sense of direction, Virginia's but next you to just New York. got busted, man. Uh, I, no, I think that was very Delaware-centric geography right there. <laughs> Everything is somewhere where Delaware is not. Sure, <laughs> excellent yeah so what happened in boone uh, magic there or to, uh, just meeting up uh you know we went uh, to western north carolina because <laughs> we had we were a band that was playing this this uh, traditional music and wanted to also have a traditional lifestyle to go with it so i think of this era as the hillbilly boot camp of the band it's like um being even though i was raised in the south i lived in I, learned to walk in New Orleans. I learned to, to, to sing in St. Louis. We moved to South Carolina in the middle of the 80s. You know, I had like a pretty southern, you know, I, the, the tea bag steeped a long time down south. Um, but, uh, but I was also, you know, a middle-class cat um, who did a lot of upper-class type of stuff mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, went away to school and went to, you know, just lived on the, on the easy street you know, sort of while took the Greyhound bus to Easy Street was sort of how we did it. Because dad was dad was always, you know, pumping us full of roadside Americana. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a really palpable sense of both sides of the street, you know, uh, and, and that and that that comes out later in my life. But um, when I turned about 18 or 19, like I knew I wanted to play country music, but, you know, I had gone to prep school. I had, you know, um, had a Reader's Digest scholarship. I had you know, sat at the feet of Allen Ginsberg. I had, you know, I'd lived in Germany in an exchange program. I'd done a yeah, bunch of stuff. That does not reek of hillbilly boot camp, right? Yeah, right. I mean, so I sort of had to go deep and, and spend a couple of years getting really close to things. And that was our trip to Boone. We moved to Avery County where all the Christmas trees are grown. We worked in all those Christmas tree fields, you know, up on the mountaintops and spreading all that poison and bringing these water packs that we'd spray with guns and keep, keep the water and going. And then we worked in all the tobacco fields and we cut. I mean, we were, we were some of the last of the, you know, kind of white college boy types to work tobacco because mm-hmm. even now, well, if you can find anybody growing it right. in, in West North Carolina, chances are it's an, it's an, it's an international workforce of Spanish speakers who are coming from Central America to do that kind of work. And then, you know, it's owned by a conglomerate now. But we, we, would, we worked these tobacco fields, and, uh, 
and the guys they were so old, you know, they would measure it in lengths and poles. You know, they would pull out this chain. Like, it, you know, this was like before. Like, it's 1930 or something. Right, right. Yeah. And this was 1997. And, and there was, somebody had satellite positioning, but not these guys. And we At night, we would communicate on a CB radio oh. and have these, like, you know, yeah. kind of talk. You're talking about Delilah. I'm more <laughs> like a talk net guy. I always dreamed of having a problem so big that only a syndicated AM radio show could fix it. <laughs> What was your handle on, as a C, on the CB? Do you remember? I'm just curious. Oh, uh, I, what, I, what'd you call yourself? I don't. I, I would go up to a friend's because again, I didn't have the all this nice. You didn't equipment. have the equipment. Yeah, <laughs> we we lived keep going in, back to the nice equipment. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. We lived down in the holler. We didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. Whoa! We, it was like a you know a deep dive. Mm-hmm. We planted by the lunar signs. We, you know, we it was a monastic lifestyle, Joe. There you go. And your tie with Chris Fuquay, uh, Critter, your one of your longtime friends. That's where this solidified. Is how did the how did your music start to form out of that? To where you said, okay, enough of this. Let's make the move to Nashville. Well, we um, we had this chance encounter with Doc Watson on the street corner, and um, you know we were always playing music on the street. That's the other thing about it that was different. God, we were just different than the other bands. Like when we got to Nashville, I learned really quickly that. When you're in a band, you have all these, these teammates with you like that are business types. Uh, you don't live in a flop house on Dickerson Road and pool your rent together. You you have a publishing deal, and you meet in nice air-conditioned areas that are, you know, like smell good, and you write songs there with professional songwriters, and then you publish them. You know, Nashville had a much more um, business acumen style of, you know, and we were a lot more like, who would come to Nashville in the 1930s, you know, half cocked, half drunk, half talented, but fooling them with the rest. And we'd set up on the curb, and that busker mentality had a real, like, kind of popular, folk populism to it. You know, it was as much about everybody else around us, the gregariousness of music, drawing them in, the heated throng, getting them to tip you when they didn't even know they liked you. Those were the great tricks. You know, a little bit vaudevillian, a little bit of a circus uh, tent mentality, um, and and that set us apart. So when we actually came to Nashville, we retained that along with this deep understanding of the traditions of of country music, uh, and were able to authenticate it in ways that you know pop radio, pop country didn't even know what it was anymore. But remember, we came here when the the word Americana referred to quilting. It wasn't a genre. It wasn't, it wasn't a genre. Uh, no, with, no, with the, yeah. with the Grammys or this anything like that. This was called alt country, or uh, yeah. you know, uh, um, or sometimes it would get called rockabilly. Yeah. You know, in uh, the mountain late, music. Yeah, the late nineties. Nobody had a. There wasn't a commercial term for roots music. Mm-hmm. Who was on the radio then? Real radio was that the the breaking out of Garth era and kind of the arena rock of country. No, it was, it was after that. That that happened when I was a kid and I was first listening to country music and thinking, "Wow, these songs are all so cool and they're all stories." And I, you know, Chattahoochee and 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 I want and I love the videos and right. I the girls were so beautiful and the crooners were so charismatic and I wanted to really be like that. Um, but I didn't ever feel like I was country enough. And also, I played the fiddle. They were all guitar jockeys. Yeah. You know, honestly, I never actually loved the guitar that much, even though it's been a great tool for me. For me, the front man is the fiddler. Yeah. 
that's, that's what you do. 22 years you've been you've been doing this. Was there a time early on where because you say you didn't fit in a particular lane of music, was that discouraging or was it hey, we're going to keep true to what we love to do. We're not going to bend or break this certain way. And 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 talk about when you're in a band, um you know, is it a democracy? Is it, you know, you, 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 these are business marriages that you have. Uh, you have friendships, and everybody has different ideas. So what, what's that first, you know, say 2000 to 2005 look like for you as you, as you reflect on, on you know, how, how did you carve your, your way? Just stubbornness? Yeah, um, stubborn tenacity <laughs> and, um, and, and considerable danger. Um, being able to pivot, being able to weave through the cones when the cones are cliffs. That's, that's an interesting uh, analogy. Yeah, I can, yeah. I can see that. So, yeah, without a net, and 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 uh, were were there management types that or people you know coming to Nashville can you know chew you up, spit you out pretty good, and 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 they've done that. The, the, the whole corporate industry. Um, were there people that said, you know, you're going to, you're really talented, but you're not, there's nothing here. You know, we dodged a lot of, um, of potential hazards uh, when we first came to town. Managers that would, uh, um, or record companies that would have taken all of our stuff with a signature. And they, if they had brought a 12 pack instead of a two liter of Coke to the house, we would have signed anything, you know, but because we were in bluegrass and bluegrass is, um, you know, I never thought of us as bluegrass because we played something that was, you know, an earlier, more archaic form of it. We played old time music. When we got to Nashville, we learned really quick. You had to write music. You had to write original songs. And like, for example, our biggest song wagon wheel, like I had already written that before the band, you know, a couple years before old crow started, but we never played it. Because I wasn't interested in playing original music. I mean, I wrote a lot of songs, but my band was here to be staunchly traditional. We wanted to play music that was from the 1920s and back as an important reminder that this is where it all comes from. Uh, and if we wrote anything, it sounded like it was that. Uh, and, you know, Wagon Wheel has, some, has a thread, a through line to old, the old times, but is, you know, is a lot more of a modern type of folk song more like a take me home country roads like a 60s folk song uh so anyway we, we definitely learned that you had to you had to sing original music in nashville and then we also learned that bluegrass was our you know the the lint trap in the in the centrifuge of of our early years in nashville the spin cycle you were going to get deposited into bluegrass and the thing about bluegrass is that it was really christian and really predatory at the same time <laughs> Imagine that. It's wonderfully creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about how you got onto the Grand Ole Opry stage. Great strategy. You just went out and played at the Grand Ole Opry. You guys were out front in the heat and busking away and bang. We would busk in front of the Opry and, and have our tip jar out there and, you know, eventually they invited us to play on the Opry, and that was sort of a. Um, it doesn't happen that way. There was like a war of attrition with every venue in Nashville. You know, we would show up and go for free, and go and go and go. Or when we finally started getting real gigs, you know, opening up for people, we would go out and busk. You know, like the, the gig might pay three hundred, but we'd go make two thousand bucks on the street corner in you know the two day residency we had going on. Uh, for, forgive me, busk. 
uh, I can't let that go four or five more times without. I don't know what that is. Oh, I'm, that, an, I'm an idiot. That's when you play for the hat. Okay, is that okay? That's okay. That's Gee, when John, you, didn't you know? <laughs> until I just learned now too. <laughs> <laughs> but what's you guys would do this so long in the summer heat? Didn't they come out one time and say, "Hey, uh, why don't you guys come back and smell better?" And then uh, we'll we'll talk. Well, hygiene later. would be good for you guys. I mean, you sound great, but but there's a, there's a little stench, a little cloud over you. It's a great story. <laughs> well, we had we did have some considerable odor and. The, you know, we were we were really kind of wild boys back then, and you know everybody smoked and everybody nobody ate, and we were always drinking so much and staying in these you know twenty three dollar motel rooms. But when the head of the Grand Ole Opry told us that they could smell us walking in, you know, that's when you never saw a bigger black ring around a bathtub in a Trinity Lane motel. And we scoured like hogs. You know, <laughs> at the auction before that next gig, and showed her. You know, we also stole several boxes of Irish Spring from the backstage area, which oh, helped. Man. And this is just fast forwarded to where you are members of the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, what was that first gig like? I've heard you on the the six fifty a.m. powerhouse Oak Crow Medicine show. You just sound great going worldwide on there. What was that like for you to finally walk out and realize your dream center stage at the Grand Ole Opry? Well, you know, it was the biggest thrill that had ever happened. You know, it's the we've won Grammys and we've opened. We were the first band to play Bonnaroo, and we've played the New Orleans Jazz Fest several times, and we've played Australia five times, and I've been in Norway and all kinds of wonderful places, and been at at, at the moment for so many wonderful musical events and collaborations. There's it's it's a been twenty five years of a lot of really high watermarks. But the Opry's the superlative, and that's that was the one that was like, oh hell, this is <laughs> this is what it was all for. What was that? Two thousand thirteen ish? Yeah, I something like that. I about you. Maybe it was twelve. And uh, a lot of folks will know you just from watching the TV on the Ken Burns series, where you yeah. went around the country with Ken, and it really highlighted Nashville country music back from those earlier days that you were talking about through your present era uh how did you hook up with ken and what was that tour like well i've always wanted to work with ken burns like anybody who's wearing a set of these i'm talking about my ear- earphones back to the gear boys very expensive <laughs> earphones so don't, make sure i'm hey when you leave there better be three left okay i'm just just saying that i've been known to steal toilet paper from okay venues, so. hey and i've got i've got some irish spring i've got my i know the number you count need, on that too so that. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd always, of course, wanted to work with Ken Burns. You know, I grew up mostly in Virginia, like I said, and the Civil War was just in our backyard. Every every high school was named for a general. Even the, you know, the, the subdivisions were named for, you know, military might. Um, and uh, and so when Ken Burns, the Civil War came out in about 1989 or 90, I was just like a sponge absorbing all this and. Um, learning his method of storytelling and then seeing, you know, baseball and jazz and so many other of the series. Well, then I finally got to meet him at the Ryman about, I guess, about 10 years ago when they first started the production for Country Music, which mm-hmm. is this amazing PBS miniseries. It's phenomenal. You got to see it. It's a 16-hour film in about seven different installments. And uh, I was an advisor to the film, you know, flew up there to see first cuts. I'm really involved in the first episode as I kind of set the groundwork for who are the progenitors of country music, where they come from, 
you know, what are the different cultures that, 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 uh, you know, lend themselves to the melting pot that is the country music sound. Amazing project and uh, wonderful to have a, a, a friend in America's Most Beloved Documentarian. It is so cool when to, to have, I mean, just the, 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 the cachet to be, and know Ken Burns, and know, to know that you were part of building this incredible uh, documentary that, that really stand, uh, stands the test of time. People that, that, uh, that, that move here that maybe not, don't even, you know, I did not grow up around country music, so it's not the genre um, that, that, that resonates with me necessarily, but to watch that documentary and know that you are part of it uh, is very cool. So, uh, Old Crow Medicine Show, they've got a album out now. Uh, the newest one is called Paint This Town, and uh, you can get it anywhere and everywhere. You're in the middle of a, of a tour that's taking you all around the country. Um, it'd be cliche. We could pay, play Paint the Town, a little snippet of that, but I, I want to go second second cut. Is that okay? Bombs uh, it, Away. It, it, it's called Bombs Away, and it's, it's a, a short little ditty here. What? Um, uh, uh, just uh, Cliff's Notes version of what this song is about. I wrote this when I was uh, an artist in residence at the at the University of the South a couple of years ago. Remember that, Joe? Sure, I do. Yeah, I was always you know, always trying to thread the needle three ways through. Get the school, the band, and my creative writing all pushed in together. You are the master, <laughs> sir. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that's I wrote a batch of, of new songs there, and Bombs Away came from from that batch. You know, I, I like being up there on. Um, uh, you know, in the the Cumberland Mountains, I, it's it's a great spot. I, I gotta say, I don't love the um, topography, the geography of um, of Middle Tennessee. Never have. Mm. I feel like the defining um, environmental characteristics of Nashville are that it smells like hamburgers, and you'll probably run over a wig. <laughs> with, with that, let's just play a little snippet of uh, uh, "Bombs Away," Old Crow Medicine Show. Catch that is organized chaos. I love it. It's so the, good. Are you on the banjo on that? Uh, no, that's Molly Tuttle. Okay. Featuring yeah. Molly. Yeah. Yeah, that's Molly Tuttle rocking that banjo. Uh, what, no, I'm on the fiddle for that one. On uh, your, you've, Your name's on every song. You have written or co-written every song. So are these these little retreats that you, you take off on? Is that the best time of songwriting for you? Is it tooling around in the bus? Is it? 7 a.m. You wake up and go, oh, got something and gonna bang it out. Where did where where you know all these songs are yours? All your great songs for Old Crows are yours. Where that where where's that happen? Well, I I write music uh, whenever I, I've had enough time away from um, the tour bus, the everybody, my kids, my volunteer work, my relationships, my you know it's usually a pretty solitary thing. Um, although I also like collaborative songwriting, uh, and so that's, you know, uh, you set these appointments and you get together with people and you've already, you have, sort of have to be in the, you know, songwriting headspace already, or then it doesn't work. And then it's just like, you're getting together with a study buddy and you're just, um, but I, 
you know, I, I feel like I've grown into sort of a more targeted songwriter. Like I know exactly what I'm looking to do. Mm-hmm. And a couple of these songs I wrote with Jim Lauderdale. Yep. Jim and I have a long God, time a big name. rapport. Yes. He's the weatherman in your video for Paint This Town. That's what I was wondering who that was. I go, I've seen that guy. That, you took one of my questions That's because him. at the very Man, beginning yeah. of the, of, of the uh, Paint This Town, yeah. uh, is guys asleep or whatever, uh-huh. watching late night and guys doing the weather. That's him. That, well, that answers that question. That's cool. Hey, does this really go on inside? I've got, <laughs> isn't it something now that records are back? Yeah. You know, you couldn't press any vinyl anywhere in the world 10 years ago, and now that's all they want. And... Is this really going around the country on the inner sleeve is all the Oak Crow uh, graffiti, graffiti art, which looks like it's from all over the country. Um, what what started that and what spurs that on? Is it the same people or do you know? Well, um, I, I was uh, I remember the first time I ever saw Oak Crow graffiti was in Humboldt County up in, um, you know, Eureka. And uh, when you do this kind of work, you get really familiar with everything in North America, if not other places as well. Uh, and so I just know the roads, the rivers, the watersheds, the, you know, I, I just know my town's real good. And so I, and I've always got a keen eye open. And I, and we were coming around this bend right at the, at the Humboldt Bay, which is a beautiful, beautiful bay. It, you know, the, the land gets real flat up there and there's a lot, of course, it's really known for its pot growing. You know, Humboldt is like synonymous with marijuana. Yeah. Um, but when you're up there, you see that it's really a dairy land, you know, so, so much milk and cheese, so many, you know, um, Hereford cattle and, uh, is that what's, who are the black and white jobs? Uh, Holstein, mm-hmm. sorry. Okay. I said Hereford, but Holstein, so many Holsteins up there. <laughs> and then, you know, anyway, it's, it's beautiful green land and it's flat. There's like a, there's a, um, anyway, that's where I noticed this old crow graffiti. And I thought, wow, I guess we're really popular out here. Like, tuh, tuh. <laughs> you, 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 you own Humboldt. <laughs> and everyone's, then everyone's high and writing old, old crow on things. This is perfect. <laughs> well, a couple weeks later, I was down in Buncombe County, North Carolina, which is everybody knows is Asheville, North Carolina. Beautiful land. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming under a railroad trestle. And there it says again, sort of in the same pen. But then about a week later, I was playing a show in New Orleans. And I, oh, God, God, we're just killing it out there. But you know what? It turns out there was a graffiti artist by the name of Old Crow. Ah, <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, yeah, perfect. You could have left, left that part out. <laughs> it was all about us. Yeah. No, it was, it was really great to learn that, cool. that it was all about somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so proud of you, Catch. This is just a great album. Uh, Old Crow Medicine Show's Paint This Town. Maybe a quick review on the Blonde on Blonde, where Wagon Wheel did come out and launch you guys into outer space of success. Uh, you've always dug Bob Dylan. How did you get that deal with him? Because it is a Dylan song, but it's something that you wrote. Uh, how did the whole Blonde on Blonde thing start and then you know escalate? Well, I always had a love and affinity for Bob Dylan and... Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were playing out in Tulsa, and out there they have the um, the new Bob Dylan archives. Right. Just opened. It just opened a couple of weeks ago, and it's right next door to the Woody Guthrie archives, which we were on hand for for the ribbon cutting. They did that on Woody's hundredth birthday, or what would have been mm-hmm. if he had lived to the year twenty twelve. He was born in nineteen twelve. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie. It's a it's a bit arbitrary that Bob would have his you know, basically presidential papers put in a state that he never dwelled in. Um, Somebody purchased the, the, the collection and brought it there. So there isn't any 
allure any really direct connection to Tulsa other than, right? The, the, the guy, the, the, the family, whoever bought it, brought it there and, and, and made it a museum, right? And they've done an amazing job, yeah. and it's wonderful to see. Tulsa is a fascinating city. You know, I, I love Tulsa and Kansas City. I, I, I remember when, when Megan was the, uh, the mayor, her, her having been a Kansas Cityan, I thought boded really well for our city. Kansas City is another midsize; it's a little bigger than mm-hmm. Nashville, um, but it's um, it's a city that has really retained character and yet invited all kinds of businesses and created an environment where where a city can really thrive on a lot of levels. But one of the levels where it's really thrived is with a a, a indigenous kind of culture, a, a Kansas City feel. And I think one of the dangers that we have here in Nashville is if we haven't already lost the Nashville feel, we're quickly losing it. You can see it from here. Yeah. yeah. Especially on this side. So um, the whole, the blonde on blonde. Back to Bob. Well, I'm trying to talk about <laughs> you're, you're getting loose in turn four there, Catchy. Yeah. He's going to bring you back. Okay. <laughs> I just, I think it was a great marriage. And uh, everyone knows of age, knows that album just about. Uh, so that had to be fun to record it and then to see the success of Wagon Wheel take off from it. Well, you know, uh, Bob came to Nashville um, in a time in which, I mean, imagine, you know, I, I came here and first time I came here was 1996. I was 18 years old. I played on the street corner on on Second Avenue, right where the bomb went off on Christmas mm. two years ago, right mm-hmm. there in front of the Sparrow. Right? Who can believe that there's a Sparrow that's still there yeah, still that there. was there 27 years ago when I first came to Nashville or whatever it was? That same pizza still sitting in the corner. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was not a great spot. But it, so anyway, I, I came here to do that and I was singing these songs and and yet it was Bob Dylan who who had the wild haired idea to come to Nashville in 1966 when there was one or two commercial recording studios in all of Nashville. Dylan heard about it from Charlie McCoy, longtime Nashvillian. Um, um, and, you know, uh, Gracie Porter was the, um, the uh, administrator of the, of the school where uh, Charlie McCoy's kids wow. attended, uh, somewhere up in Donaldson, I think. Gracie, a great educator here in East Nashville for years, decades. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Charlie McCoy had the sirenic call to say to Bob, hey, you might like Nashville. And before Neil Young, before the Birds, before Joni Mitchell, before so many recording artists came, you know, and look at them now. It's like Steven Tyler and like Kid Rock and Lionel Richie. Yeah, they're all, just, everybody come Nashville. Yeah. Bob was the first. He was the first guy from the outside who did not make country music who said, I want to go to that recording capital and try my stuff. He made four albums here. Uh, and they're groundbreaking records. Uh, mm-hmm. Blonde on Blonde being the first one is a double record. It's pop music's very first double record. This had only happened in jazz. People think it's the White Album, but it's Blonde on Blonde. It was made in Nashville, Nashville product, Nashville session players. You know, just an amazing album. And the Country Music Hall of Fame asked us to help celebrate it, and we ended up sort of overthrowing it and reinventing it. It's tremendous. Going out on a world tour, playing it, so... It's been a lot of fun celebrating Bob and, you know, um, shining a light for younger music fans who might not have heard Dylan's music the way I heard it in such a powerful, influential way when I was a kid. That studio is still there on 16th. 
Avenue. I think wasn't that the old CBS studio or Columbia in those days or uh, it has it's one of the few places that hasn't gotten whacked down on Music Row as Ketch is talking about the the growth of Nashville. A lot of our great really historic kind of areas are the city hasn't caught up on codes and developers are knocking down stuff that really had a lot of impact in those days. But a lot of great music recorded. Elvis recorded on that strip too. Tons of of history I can't even talk about. But it was uh, it was it was a great era to be right there on Music Row. Yeah, it was really the the, the center of, of of Nashville's recording industry and as you say, you know, Charlie Pride, Dolly Parton, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, all of that is from Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Indiana. A lot of people know that um, uh, John Mellencamp had a huge influence on my life, the soundtrack of my life. Not that I, my parents lost a farm or anything like that, but I just, I was going to school at, at, at Butler and, and uh, uh, John was so big back in the 80s and just blowing up and we loved the thing. And I drove past Seymour, I can't tell you how many times. And I know he's he's had a, had a, a bit of an influence from from uh, from my research. Um, what what bothers me is is uh, do you know John? I suspect we've done some shows with him. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just he's wonderful. I just, yeah, he's he, big uh, fan. He's been um, yeah, just a huge influence uh, in, in my life, and it's amazing. He's he's got to be a cat. He's on like his thirteenth life, you know, because I mean he, <laughs> he is he is on borrowed time. He's got that gravel. Will not quit smoking, right? Yeah. You know? So talk about the the influence of John. Sure. Give me uh, a good John story. Well, um, uh, he uh, he is like kind of a rusty old farm implement in yeah. front of a uh, good way of putting it. A farm under <laughs> foreclosure, and yet he's still managed to like, you know, put a mini pond in there, and like a you know, he's got the tour bus parked out front. Right. Um, yeah. He's that's he's a wild dude. You know, I don't. I haven't. I haven't gotten to know him very well because mostly because I'm so terrified of him. Um, he is intimidating. Well, yeah, his nickname no, is Little Bastard. So yeah, yeah, he, and, he, and he, he wears, he wears it, well, it with so. pride. He's, he's, he, he. Uh, yeah, I, I went. He, he had a show opening uh, at the Tennessee State Museum. Uh, he was showing his art. A lot of people know that he he does that. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a hobby. He's a vocation for him. And and part of the ground rules with their publicists was. <clears throat> You know, no, no, no questions about Meg. Meg Ryan was there at the time, uh, but I, I saw his. I, I, I asked him. I, I'm trying to think. It's a good question because his art is very moving, uh, uh, moody, and dark, and and it's, it it drips with with sadness and fear and anger. And so I try to describe that to him. I go, "Tell me, where does this come from?" And he, you know, John being John, just goes, well, "I don't, I don't really see it that way." I'm like. There's no other way to see it. You, you've got a ghost with this guy, you know, with this woman on a cross. It's just, it's just, it, but he does it just because he's not going to give me the satisfaction of thinking I have figured out his art, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think Dylan's that way a lot too, yeah. that um, I think that the kind of celebrity that could exist in a, you know, in a 12 channel America or a five radio station America, that level of celebrity um, pitted a lot of press against um, the celebrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Dylan was basically cornered from the very beginning. Uh, and anybody who um, got famous, you know, I, I see this level of hysteria around artists in, in the pop camp. Like I think Britney has endured what Bob had to endure um, in the 1960s that maybe what, um, you know, uh, the Coog had to go through in mm-hmm. the 80s. Um, but I don't. But because we're now on a you know 500 channel system, 
it's a lot easier to, you know, go get a cup of coffee and also have a couple Grammys in your back, you know, in your trunk Mm -hmm. or, you know, be a platinum selling artist and, you know, take your kids to daycare or whatever. Um, And then, you know, I mean, I, I, I love working with the press because I love storytelling. Um, But I think the press also has, can, can be off putting to an artist, make them feel, you know, um, I tell you though, um, what I love most about the Indiana offering to American music is um, predates John Cougar Mellencamp by about um, three generations. The recording capital of the Hoosier State, of course. That's my drum roll sound. Not Gary. Bloomington. No, no, no. Keep going. Keep uh, going. Uh, Who's uh, got uh, it? Carmel. Kokomo. Oh, come on, baby. Uh, uh, Carmel. Wallace um, South Bend. No, um, no. Uh, Evansville, uh, Terre Haute, uh, Muncie. Where do they mean? I don't. <laughs> they ain't even said it yet. Jeez. It's not Fort Wayne. It's it's. it's uh, uh, I don't know. My this uh, is your state. I know. I'm. Sir. Well, we're gonna edit this out. Sir. That's gonna be the beauty of it. No, no. We want to keep all those. Goshen. Who's your towns in? La Paz. Uh, it's it's Lakeville. near Elkhart. It's near Goshen. It's, Osceola. Of course. The, the capital of the recording industry in Indiana is Richmond. Richmond, Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, the Richmond Red Devils. I, my high school coach who I was supposed to play for, who was awesome, left after my sophomore year, and we didn't get a great replacement. So I always, whenever I think of Richmond, it, I feel bent, and I feel like I'm cheated. But that's another podcast yeah, for another time. I'm, I'm over it. By, I'm over it, by not, the way. I'm damn over it. I, I just want you to know that. I don't think he's talking Richmond. about your sports career. I know. I know. He's talking about the history Richmond. Why, why Richmond? Hoosier State. Well, How'd that happen? Why Richmond is because of the recording industry and how many turntables and, um, and recording devices were made in this very pre-Rust Belt town. Did not of, know that. Of, um, you know, uh, machine shops and of industry and manufacturing. Um, and they had a recording studio for the Gannett Recording Company. Gannett was um, uh, owned a company called OK Records, O K E H, and they were one of the very first in the twenties and uh, early nineteen thirties recording companies uh, outside of the big East Coast recording companies, which were all out of Camden, New Jersey. That was Brunswick Vocalion, Columbia being out of New York. You often hear about the field recordings that happen, like the Bristol sessions, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, you know, the recording sessions in San Antonio that produced Robert Johnson. The, the alternative to a field recording or setting up a recording um, in a town like Bristol in an old furniture store and cultivating talent, you know, with an open audition sort of thing. The other way that, the, that records in the 20s were made was a call to established stars in the South to come north to make their records. So everybody in the Atlantic South would go to New York but everybody in the rest of the South, from Nashville to Arkansas, New Orleans, um, would all go to Richmond, Indiana. There you go. And they'd ride the train, and they would make, you know, some of the Mamie Smith, um, uh, Fletcher Henderson, um, you know, uh, well, and those names might not mean nothing to you. I didn't even know Richmond. You do. You have so many many stories let's um he's a fabulous he's an absolute fabulous storyteller and uh you can just i've I've heard catch go once he once you can see his eyes get bigger and bigger and once he catches the groove man i love uh, it hey why why don't we um uh we're we're gonna wrap up in just a bit and 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 touch upon 
um, how you all kind of met eight years ago. I think it's worth telling, oh, yeah. and and that 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 component kind of tying back to what you said at the very beginning of this program. Uh, but let's let's get to a few questions. Okay. So we got questions. Questions. Ask your questions. Time for questions. Questions. Is this an all in show? This is. Uh, it is uh, Ethel from Richmond. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna say Richmond. It's gonna be like. I'm gonna have to go there you on will. my way to South Bend now, j- just to just to visit. Um, these are rapid fire questions. Uh, don't overthink it. And and we have never had a guest do a rapid fire. So uh, it's really it's whatever you want to Sales say. every time. How's that? So go ahead, Joe. Uh, well, we're talking about the many forms of music. I have Catch's new album. What are you What are you listening? Is it uh, are you still are you on the Apple stuff? Do you still carry the CDs? My question is, what's in your CD player now, or what's on your Apple channel? Or well, I got a tape deck. So how do you want me to go with Whoa. this? Whoa! I, I recently purchased a Japanese import vehicle, right hand drive, and it's from the '90s, and it's got a tape deck, and I was able to bring all my old tapes in from the basement. Uh, is this eight track or cassette? What this is all cassettes? Cassettes. Uh, okay, that's great. Yeah. What's in it now? Oh, uh, what do I got on tape? I mean, tapes, man. I got some. Oh, I, well, I, somebody gave me a whole bunch of um, uh, Dylan and the Dead bootlegs. I really like the Grateful Dead, so you mostly find those on tape. What is your biggest pet peeve? Um, you know, I, I'm not that into being behind a pedal tavern and waiting <laughs> for a phalanx of roller bags to pass. So I would say roller bag... At an intersection, pedal mm-hmm. tavern, and me behind that. Yeah. Oh, and also hemmed in on the other side by a um, tractor pull type vehicle Trailer. with a with a party on the back. Yeah, and then you're boxed in with the uh, the hot t- the mobile hot tub, which you talk you they talk about uh, as I call it you just a human petri dish. It's just. God, that's an awful thing. What Catch thing. is describing is what you'll catch on Lower Broad in Nashville now, uh, where we have so many. What are those? What's what, what's a call when you get married? Info the women, tape, uh, no, the women the, have the woo ha girls the parties. They have yeah, their, the bachelorette, the bachelorette yeah, parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nashville's the number one hotspot. Yeah. Okay, Catch uh, in that music question too. Catch is a huge reader. What's uh, what's the, what's the last book you read? Uh, I just finished The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, I recommend it to everybody. It's by John Steinbeck. And, yeah. And you, if you haven't read it, I, I never read it in high school, which is, seems to be the time that one reads that. But yeah. um, it rocked my world, man. I, I yeah. just, I loved it. I loved that story. I think it, it has, it resonates a lot with um, with the um, immigration issues that we're having with um, Central American workers doing so much of the labor in in the United States, um, but being vilified for the for that, um, being hated and scourged at the border as if they don't as if they aren't the labor force here, hammering every nail, digging every ditch. Uh, the Okies were treated that way, uh, and the Arkies and folks from Missouri and folks from Idaho and anybody who went to California in the 1930s during the Depression. They were all treated like scum and hated. Uh, and then they were all called communists when they asked for a livable wage. I've heard this echo, uh, and it sounds awfully familiar to me, um, as we treat our brothers and sisters who come from um, Honduras and El Salvador similarly. But I think the thing that's most powerful is that 
that Grapes of Wrath represents a time in which we were able to treat ourselves that way, that a Californian uh, could say to an Oklahoman, you're less than human, even though we're all Americans. Um, I, I say that, that uh, you know, we're all humans before anything else. When people say you live in Nashville, I, and this is not part of 10 questions, but I'm just going to add this. People are like, oh, you know, that's, uh, I hear that's a cool town, up in Kentucky town. I said, do you know how melting pot it is? Do you know how many countries are represented in the metro school system? It is, we are the United Nations. And, and, and I don't think that gets played up enough uh, outside of Nashville. I think they think it's a, it's a party town. It's a good three-day town. Um, you know, it's, it's the songwriters and musicians are great, but um, man, we got, we got every country represented in, in Davidson County. Yeah. And I've, I've share your frustration that uh, the message about Nashville is increasingly about what a good time you can have there and then go back yeah. home to where it sucks. Yeah. You know, yeah. like God, I'm in these airports in you know, Baltimore or Florida or the upper Midwest or wherever. And it, and it's just these these folks who can't wait to get to Nashville so they can get the hell out of wherever they are right. so that they can go back to wherever the hell they are with at least a little bit of joy. <laughs> and I just don't think that our commodity here is a is a weekend. I, I yeah, think that we're we better have, than that. We're we're a lot better than that yeah. in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, next question: uh, Last meal on earth for you? What would you have? What would you do? Where'd uh, you go? I've been eating a lot of Beyond Burger. <laughs> I've be- I become vegetarian about two years ago, and, okay. And my becoming vegetarian has coincided with a um, a wonderful um, smorgasbord, if you will, of new f- meat substitute products. Uh, but I'm most interested um, in uh, how your listeners might feel about this new kind of meat. Have you heard about about the the humane or ethical meats? Uh, no product so they're making meat in a in a laboratory and it never is part of an animal um you know you basically can grow it wow Uh, so but so but you're not there's not pain involved there's not slaughter involved it's it's there's not is, is that the whole idea yeah, well, there's not. I'm not real smart, catch. <laughs> did I? Did I? Did, did I get the grasp? Does it have a name? Yeah. No, there's there's not. There, you're not killing anything, right? Yeah. But but and, and maybe for my taste, what what's more important to look at is that you're not feeding, watering, or sustaining a creature who takes up more oil than any of us put together, more water than any of us put together, more land. You know, I mean, animals. When you raise, you know, when you're raising um, freezer beef out there in the stockyards, man, like that's that's a that's like the coal mining of farming. I mean, it's a it's a, big it's a caustic act. Where, where do you get this? Yeah, where do you get this fake meat? Yeah, that's real meat. Yeah, the faux meat. Uh, I don't know. I just read about this a couple weeks oh, ago. Oh, okay. So, you, so is, we haven't sampled. This is cutting edge technology. Okay, this is, you don't see. You can't get this on any podcast. You can't, you can't get that. Should be sponsoring the old crow tour. So on. So my my I am not a meat eater right now. Although I've you know I've been to the I I bought you know my last before I turned vegetarian I was routinely buying you know a steer. Like when I met you, yeah. I probably told you about it because I uh-huh. like me and Eric Dozier went in on a steer, and I was yep. always buying a damn steer. <laughs> yep. sure, that's very popular. You split a, a steer, and with two three people and. 
Then you get all the, the meat you need for a year. For it's a year. Great. Right. And then you also, you know where your food comes from. Like, I just don't like when my, like, I'm, I guess I'm okay when my Brussels sprouts come from Kroger, <laughs> but when my, my animal comes from yeah, Kroger. Yeah, when your, your carnivore you consumption. It comes from somewhere. Yeah. Nice. Um, playing the Grand Ole Opry so many times, who's your favorite performer from the Grand Ole Opry? Uh, it's probably Charlie Pride. Really? Yeah. Or maybe, uh, oh, Charlie. God. Just his personality in general. So it seemed seemed like sweet man. I, I, I'm gonna guess. Yeah, Charlie was uh, sweet and 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 also ruminating and um, and um, deep and dark and mysterious and uh, the most consistent vocalist uh, that I've ever been around at the Opry. Um, you know, he loved baseball and he always yeah. wanted to talk about sports with yeah. you. He was a co-owner of the Rangers. He had played semi-pro ball in the Negro Leagues. Um, he had made a choice, which is interesting. Roy Acuff also had the choice. He made a choice to pursue music instead of baseball. Uh, Roy Acuff learned to play the fiddle because he was injured in the um, in the uh, um, the Citrus League. Grapefruit League, is that Grapefruit what Grapefruit League, yeah, yeah, like spring training yeah, down, yeah. down in Florida or he Arizona. Was, yeah. He was injured, injured in, a, um, you know, in a Yankees camp. No kidding. Yeah. So if that injury doesn't happen, who knows? No Roy Akif. Yeah. You got another one? No, that's it. That's I, it for questions. Uh-uh, I got one more. Catch uh, plays the fiddle. What is the difference between a fiddle and a violin? It's the way the bridge is cut. That's it. They're the same thing. It's just two, you say potato, I say patata. Okay. Did you know that? No, of, of course, course not. No, I flunked recorder depends. in third grade. Yeah. I have no apps. I have no uh, when I moved to Tennessee, musical talent Charlie, whatsoever. Charlie Daniels played the fiddle. Oh. And I'm like, it looks like a violin from where I come from. Well, there you go. Answer. <laughs> so those are now questions, questions. Those are good. That's good. So let's get back to, uh, as we wrap this up with Catch, um, you all met eight or so years ago, and you have so many different layers and, and dimensions to you. Um, you're a fascinating guy, and I love the your storyteller. And we're so thankful that you even gave an hour of your time or a little under that. Um, how, how did you guys? You guys have a, a connection with the Episcopal Church? We do. Catch uh, us Episcopalian. I am too. And maybe uh, probably as early as 2010, I think the conversation started. I was on the west side of town. Catch is on the east side of town, and Catch had an idea for an Episcopal school. Uh, the Episcopal School of Nashville, fast forward, is still growing and succeeding and catches, he, he can tell this story, his father, J.C. Kors, has uh, been a headmaster around several parts of the country of starting Episcopal schools. And Ketch has been our chairman of the board. And uh, when I first met him, uh, we were driving around town looking for locations, and it was really a God-given fence post of success, I think, for all of us in those early days of putting a team together and finding it. Uh, and so Ketch uh, was just instrumental in our in our life here. The bishop is kind of your president of the church. So going, there's channels just like everything in life. You have to go through and raise money and start stuff out. So uh, rewind Ketch to how your life was with your father and your family starting Episcopal schools and living in that arena and then starting one here in nashville well dad always had the family business and i knew i didn't want any part in dad's family business <laughs> i want to start my business i'm a singer and an entertainer and i want to go out damn it and do it 
And then I, you know, turned 30 something and suddenly just like the clock ran out on my sense of what my business was. And it just became the most natural thing in the world to start doing what dad did. And I I did it differently than dad. Dad always did it as a head of school, uh, as an administrator. Mm -hmm. Uh, and headmaster is as it? a headmaster, yeah. yeah. Starting, um, you know, working in um, um, oftentimes Episcopal elementary schools, but sometimes, you know, all kinds of elementary schools, uh, but always independent schools. That was dad's thing. And then he worked so that he got to begin to open schools, start them. And then he'd hire, he started two schools, resurrected a third. Um, and so I saw that, you know, as a kid and, um, the role I took was as the founder, and I would meet the founder figure in in my life as a kid. I met the founder in Aiken. I met the in South Carolina. I met the founder in Virginia, and they were always pretty weird. You know, these guys with these self-aggrandizing visions of I'm going to build a school. <laughs> a school. They yes. said it just that way. My picture will be on the hallway as everyone walks. Uh, there'll in. be a painting. Yes. <laughs> So, you know, I knew I wasn't going to build that kind of joint. And um, I don't know. I guess, it, you know, there's a divine thing here that's um, there's a there's a divinity to when you have an idea that you have decided to act on when it's a, an idea that is about um, humanity, I think, mm-hmm. is what it comes down to, is that that's a blessed event. So when you embark on an idea, on seeing it through to fruition, and it's an idea that in its that is inherently good and right, uh, and good for people, I think those types of steps forward tend to result in a positive change in the world, and that's sort of on the micro level. It's not about you know, how big anything becomes. It's about knowing that you have it in your heart to go serve and taking the step forward and saying, yes, I accept the call. I will go do the hard shit. Yep. And you did. We it started at St. Anne's just down the street from us. We had this conglomeration of trailers. Oh, I remember it right Single, at fifth and main, wide. right? Was and, it fifth and main? Uh, ish. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so real estate with the boom of all we've talked about in Nashville went from you could buy a whole city block for not a lot of money 20 years ago or more longer, but now it's the highest priced. We're starting a school in the highest priced side of East Nashville ever. Uh, but it was a blessing. St. Anne's took us in, and now there's a new location a little further. Uh, Wait, where's the new location? Right we're just about a block from from your man cave here. Is that right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. And what K through or is it what, what, what how many grades? The what? Episcopal School in Nashville, which is at 1310 Ordway Place. Okay. Right up here at the corner of 14th. Here we are at 14th and 6th. Is that okay? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah that's in- ish, you know, <laughs> ish. <laughs> <laughs> to fight the crowd to get in here. Yeah. Here we are down along the Woodland Street corridor. Well, thank you. The Episcopal School of Nashville has been opened in the most historic uh, metro elementary school building in Nashville. It is the historic Ross Elementary School, which was decommissioned in the 90s uh, and has served as an incubator for some schools since then, uh, all with great success. So uh, my kids are now enrolled in 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 our school, which has... You know, uh, it was built in 1906. It's a, uh, wow. it's, uh, it's right up the street. You got to go take a look. Yeah, no, you know, it's one of those. It's right in your, literally in your backyard, and you don't even realize that that's that's there. That's wonderful it's the that you have newest done Episcopal this. school in the country. 
uh, and wow. it has been since we started it. No one else said, okay, I'll do that <laughs> hard thing. <laughs> Almost every large city has one except Nashville. And you can see it, ESN, esnashville.org is yeah. uh, the best. And we are always taking donations. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's been a labor of love and success. And, fun, and as you know, John, fundraising. Uh, John is the CEO of Jobs for Tennessee Graduates, who is in the same arena of helping. Uh, for our school, it started out as underserved. East Nashville public schools ch- tend to tank. Uh, especially for the elementary kids. So this is a great school with outstanding instructors. And uh, it, it's, I tell you what, I still, I drive by it, the hair pops up just to, as what a dream started to now, you know, we, there's employees there. There's a lot of kids that go there and it continues to grow. Yeah. We got about 150 kids uh, enrolled in this new school year. This will be our seventh or eighth year now. And we are pre-K through the eighth grade. So we finally achieved that one goal, which was to be a full elementary through junior high program. Uh, And, uh, you know, we've got uh, a really wonderful group of kids that have come together, um, kids from all walks of life. We have 50% of our students are receiving reduced tuition. We're trying now very hard to launch food service, knowing that that's the key for uh, serving kids who um, are, you know, have food insecurity at home. That represents a lot of kids in this neighborhood. Um, and so, um, yes, if you're listening to this and you're looking for an opportunity to be involved and give to kids and give to community, then please visit our website at www.esnashville.org and uh, and reach out to me or to Joe. We'd be happy to give you a tour of the joint. I think that's fantastic. The beautiful thing is 50 years from now, you two and others uh, will have left something better than it was. And, you know, success is not success if you do not give back. And uh, what a great way to, you know, you could stay in your lane, do music, write music. Uh, but to do this and to create something, yep. when, when you said it was the heavy lift, um, that's wonderful. That's fantastic. Um, let's wrap up with this. As, as uh, Old Crow Medicine Show is on a, on a tour, a summer tour, do you ever... You know, is it as fun as it was back when you're, you know, eating hamburgers, not cheeseburgers? I mean, that's when you were car- carnivore, I guess. But, <laughs> but it, do you, is, is it, is it the still vibe? Do you, I mean, tell me about the tour and, 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 you know, is this going to be what you're going to be doing? And do you, in 10 years from now, you're going to be like, yeah, let's, let's do our tour in 2030. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Oh, yeah? we, we have, is it as fun as? Yeah, it, you know, it really is. And I, I think that, uh, at least for in the music business and having the, um, 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 ability to have gotten through COVID as well as we did um, for our band, um, which is a privilege. Uh, but having had that privilege, uh, the recalibration of, okay, you didn't get to do it for a little while. What does it mean to you? Why do you care about it? Um, having it taken away was a really wonderful way, you know, because of course the music business really tanked after, after March of 2020. Uh, and if you had a new record out there, sorry, man, you know. But we happened to weather the storm really well and used it as an opportunity to intensify our our efforts and be really creative and um, hire a new lineup. And, you know, um, it's only as good as the reinvention. I learned this from Bob Dylan, you know. You make a gospel record. You make a – then you're doing Sinatra. Then you're like – then you're – you know, you're doing a rap collab, you know, 
and all of it with a voice like this, you know? <laughs> so just do it, man. You got to you got to keep them on their toes. And when we go out on the on the road, you know, I'm looking at this map of the state of Tennessee behind you. And one of my dreams has always been to do a, a tour that was just about this state that we would go Obion to Polk County, that we go Mountain City to Memphis and crisscross Nashville uh, and, uh, along the way. Um, I still look at roadmaps and I think about places that I haven't been yet and I want to go and the call um, is alluring and it and it and it's loud and I still hear it even after all these years. You're an unbelievable talent catch. Uh, I, I've just seen the man in action. He'll come off a hard, hard tour and be at the Episcopal School less than eight hours later in his leadership and love for it. And uh, his kids are just right in the middle of it. Beautiful. Beautiful children too. Really, really enjoyed yeah. this hour. Thank Joe, you, Catch, for, yeah. for giving, John. Giving thank your you time both in. so much, me? Joe. Especially thanks to you for uh, all that you put up with here as a member of a fledgling uh, not five hundred one c three board. This was a real challenge, y'all, and there was there, and it's still we're not out of the woods yet, um, but we're doing real good. And um, you know, it was it was a heavy lift, and I, I appreciated so much being able to do that lift with you another musician, uh, somebody who was a lot closer to me in age than anybody else on that board. <laughs> we shot the age curve down <laughs> yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but I know, I know you did. Was John, who was the guy that... Uh, John that, Fitzgerald. He, was, he, he was, was a big part of that, right? He was one of our original, of uh, you know, I don't yeah. CEOs, chairman. He was our original uh, chairman. Right. Uh, we just needed a little separation of stuff, and John rolled off, catch, took over, and added more mm-hmm. stuff to his plate in an already pre-COVID busy life. Yeah. It was a long five years. <laughs> it it was, really yeah. was. Yeah. Your overnight success it took you took uh, you yeah. five years. What, what I've learned from this, uh, you're such an inspiration, but uh, also instead of having a, uh, I have the map of Tennessee behind me in the uh, JTG International Headquarters. I'm going to get a map of Indiana so I know the hell my state. I have really failed that that, that mission about yeah. that. We'll, you put me on the spot. We'll be playing up in uh, on the banks of the White River here in a couple of weeks. Where will I be? That will be uh, the White River is in the Indianapolis area. You got that. Thank one. you very much. Yeah. Because I used to uh, sneak down at Butler and we go on the White River there with a uh, couple sorority girls. Anyway, it's another story, another no, another story, another time. We're not, we're not going to get into that. Anyway, hey, this has been Second Cup of Joe. And John. It's the Second Cup of Joe and John as their guests expound on any and all topics within the realm of decency. Want to be a sponsor? Let a TV and radio guy help build your business. Email the show, second cup of Joe and John at gmail.com. Now, hold on tight and grab another second cup of Joe and John.